Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a weekly podcast that will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O Mary, star of the sea, light of every ocean, guide seafarers across all dark and stormy seas, that they may reach the haven of peace and light prepared in him who calmed the sea. As we set forth upon the oceans of the world and cross the deserts of our time, show us, O Mary, the fruit of your womb, for without your Son we are lost. Pray that we will never fail on life's journey, that in heart and mind and word and deed, in days of turmoil and in days of calm, we will always look to Christ and say, Who is this? that even wind and sea obey him. Bright star of the sea, guide us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That opening prayer comes from Pope John Paul II, and is a prayer, as you can tell, calling upon Mary as star of the sea. Later in the show, we'll talk with our guest Daria Little, who is a convert from Islam to Catholicism. And in her Marian profile, she shared that this was one of the favorite titles of Mary, Star of the Sea, and also one of her favorite prayers. I thought it was fitting for us to hear that prayer that she'll briefly mention later on. It is an exciting show that we'll be talking about Islam. Ramadan begins on May 5th and goes through June 4th. So it'll be a wonderful opportunity for us to kind of understand some of the basic tenets of Islam, but also to hear her story of how she left that faith to come into the fullness of truth in the Catholic faith. Before we hear from Daria Little, let us first review the trending Marian tweets and topics of the past week. You know, on Twitter, lots of people will change their names, and if you're uberly cool in the Catholic sense, You'll change it to reflect the liturgical seasons. Hannah has changed her name to Hosanna, and her handle is at H-A-N-M-A-R-I-A-M-S. She tweeted this, Powerful thing to pray Aves as you watch someone die in front of you. Let me tell you, she is on to something. That as you watch someone you love, maybe a family member, maybe it's a friend, to pray with them in those moments before death, to pray the Hail Mary, to pray the Rosary, can definitely be a very powerful experience. I know that was the case for me. Back in late summer last year, there was a parishioner of mine, a young man who I had gotten to know quite well, he and his family, his parents, his brothers, his wife, his children, and he was dying of cancer. God always has a hand in how things happen Because that day before he died, I was thinking, I haven't been there. I need to go, and I have to offer him last rites. And so I was actually beginning to text his wife saying, can I come by and see him? And as I began typing, she began typing to tell me that it was getting worse, that they thought maybe I should come tomorrow. And I said to her, no, I'm going to come right now. And so I went that night, I drove over to the hospital, and there I was with him and the family. And it was one of the most powerful experiences of praying the rosary that I ever had. We prayed the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, I led the rosary. The entire family, parents, brothers, others, they knelt down at the bedside. 
and there we were praying the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary. And as I was praying those words of the Hail Mary, as I was praying the Fatima prayer, as I was reflecting on the mysteries of the rosary, I really was seeing the rosary mysteries come alive in a sense. There was a point where the wife would wipe the face of the young man. And so in that, I saw Veronica wiping the face of Jesus as we prayed that mystery of carrying the cross. As he was dying there, literally in his last hours of life, it was as if he was there and that was his crucifixion. That was his moment of suffering. We prayed the rosary together and it was the first time that I prayed with someone in the process of dying that really was able to pray at times with us. A lot of times as a priest, you go, you anoint someone, you see somebody in the hospital right before death, you come in, anoint, give the apostolic pardon, all of that. The person really isn't with it. They're in a comatose state. But this young man was praying the Hail Mary with us. And I couldn't help but realize as he prayed, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death that that hour was coming closer and closer. And so he was praying for that moment in which he would go to be with the Lord. Another moving point of that prayer that evening was praying the Fatima prayer, lead all souls to heaven. I realized that that's what we were praying for in that moment, that God would lead his soul once he would take his last and dying breath, that God would lead him into eternal life, that Mary would be there praying at that hour of death. It's a very powerful rosary. I'll never forget it. It was one of the most powerful experiences of my life, and that's what Hannah is saying, a powerful thing to pray Aves as you watch someone die in front of you. Friar Nick, OFM Conventual, his handle, at F-R-Nick-O-F-M-C-O-N-V, had this to say, trying to figure out how to deepen my Marian spirituality, dot, dot, dot. St. Maximilian Kolbe's consecration to the Blessed Virgin Mary, done. Life-size image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, on my wall. Miraculous medal, around my neck, never comes off. Rosary, every single day. What I think Friar Nick beautifully captures in that tweet is, the depth and the dimension of his Marian devotion. That yes, there's some things that he's done already, the Marian consecration for him being a Franciscan, having an affinity towards St. Maximilian Kolbe. To have a reminder of the intercession of Mary, the maternal gaze of Mary, as he has that image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. To have the protection of Mary on your person, as he wears the miraculous medal around his neck, praying the rosary every single day. Friar Nick is one of the individuals who's responsible for sharing what he calls hashtag signal graces, which is one of the promises associated with the rosary. And he shares all these different ways in which God is at work and revealing himself through the graces that he receives. He's trying to figure out how to deepen his Marian spirituality. Not that I have any room to give any suggestions, but perhaps maybe praying with the Marian scriptures. As we meditate upon them in the rosary, yes, but really to go deeper, to do that Lexio Divina. I've also seen uh, Tommy Tai is one who 
tweeted also this past week about the little office of the Blessed Virgin Mary. But as I see people share about that little office of the Blessed Virgin, that might be another way for us to deepen our Marian spirituality. It could be praying another Marian prayer. I've been reading the book Insinu Jesus, and one of the things the author, the priest, the Benedictine monk at prayer, this journal of this priest, he said that he prays the Ave Maristella every day for the clergy. I decided that I was going to at least try to do that here now for the last few days, and I kind of am able to understand why he would pray the Ave Maristella. The beauty of Friar Nick's tweet is, is that he wants to uncover even more that treasury of the Marian devotion of our church. That's what this podcast seeks to do. He helps us to really understand how they love Mary, how he loves Mary in a very unique way. But yet he says, I want to do something more. I want to uncover something. When we study the lives of the saints and when we hear from other believers about their Marian devotion, it can inspire us. Maybe it helps us to want to pray and to deepen our Marian devotion in some way. So thanks, Friar Nick, for sharing about your own quest to deepen your Marian spirituality. I hope you continue to tweet and that you'll share how you're doing that. Haley Stewart, also known as Haley Carrots on Twitter, as her handle says this, Just thinking about how some of the cells of a child remain forever in his mother's body, and that it means that Jesus' most precious body and blood were always present in Our Lady's body after Christmas Day, making her literally a living tabernacle. There's a lot there in Halley's tweet. When Christ dwelt in her womb, that's one of the realizations we have, especially in the scriptures. Bishop Barron points this out beautifully as Mary goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth and John the Baptist leaps for joy in the womb, that he's dancing before the Ark of the Covenant, that Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant, that she is this living tabernacle. But what Haley Stewart does is she also brings in this other dimension, this biological aspect. I can't really comment on it. I'm not a biologist, not a scientist. But she brings it out at least for us to begin to think about and maybe there's someone out there that I can converse with at a time in the future that I can really talk about the science behind this. Remember what she said. Just think about how some of the cells of a child remain forever in his mother's body and that it means that Jesus' most precious body and blood were always present in Our Lady's body after Christmas Day. So Mary becomes a living tabernacle because of the incarnation, yes, because of the physical presence of Christ, but she's suggesting also in the living reminder of the biological nature that the cells of a child stay with a mother. Something for us to think about and hopefully unpack in a future episode. The National Catholic Register ran an article, How I Overcame My Objection to Mary and Became Catholic, sharing the story of an individual who converted to Catholicism, who was a Protestant, and how they had those objections to the Blessed Mother. For example, Romans, where it says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and trying to understand that text of sacred scripture in view of Mary's Immaculate Conception. It was a very beautiful article. I always enjoy reading the stories of converts 
and how they come to appreciate the Blessed Mother, how they're able to overcome some of these biases that they've been raised with in their Protestant tradition. I'd encourage you to go and to check out that article. Father Harrison Iyer at FR Harrison tweeted this, The priest as father can only be rediscovered in part when the church rediscovers her archetype in Mary, that the priest lives in that Marian mode, and that he delves more deeply into the Marian attitude. If you follow Father Harrison of the Clerically Speaking Podcast on Twitter, you know that Father Harrison was tweeting about a journal that he recently received of Communio and how it was focusing all on the priesthood. There was an article in there about the Marian dimension of priestly spirituality, and this is probably where he's quoting this from. Father Harrison's tweet about Communio, which I was familiar with as a theological journal, which I've used in my research and my writings for different theological papers and articles that I've done, but I didn't subscribe to it. But his tweet actually compelled me to go out there online to find it and to subscribe to it so that I could get this latest edition and really reflect on the priesthood. I'm very grateful to Father Harrison for sharing about this recent edition of the Communio magazine. What Father Harrison tweets out, the priest's father can only be rediscovered in part when the church rediscovers her archetype in Mary, that the priest lives in the Marian mode and that he delves more deeply into the Marian attitude. You know, for a while in the priesthood, there was kind of this poo-pooing of Marian devotion. In some seminaries, I hate to say it, but I've heard these stories from clergy is that they were looked down upon if they had a Marian devotion, if they prayed the rosary. Some people were even dismissed over this. And so there was that aspect in which the Marian dimension of priestly spirituality was neglected for a few decades, perhaps, but there's been a strong reclaiming. We had the great pontificate of John Paul II, who gave this great example of a lived Marian spirituality. Benedict wrote about the Blessed Mother. Pope Francis visits the Shrine of Mary in Rome and leaves flowers before and after each pilgrimage. He promotes the devotion to Our Lady Undoer of Knots. He prays the rosary every day. And so really this recovery of the Marian devotion of the church is happening. So the priest as father is being rediscovered in light of this Marian dimension. This is all an ecclesiotypical Mariology of seeing Mary in relationship to the church and the priest and the role in the church and how that all is interconnected. Archbishop Fulton Sheen always said that the priest needs the feminine in his life. He needs to have a devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. As I mentioned a little bit earlier about reading the book Insino Jesus, he talks at length about priests and Marian devotion and how it is a necessary component of priestly life. These are just a few of the tweets and topics that I saw on social media this past week, helping us to reflect a little bit more on the Blessed Virgin Mary. We'll take a short break now and listen to some music from Anna Nuzzo, and when we come back, we'll talk with author Daria Little as she shares about her own conversion from Islam to Christ. And in the context of this episode, we'll also talk about her Marian devotion. Stay tuned. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, 
very excited to be talking today with Daria Little as she shares her own conversion from Islam to Christ, the title of her own book in which she recounts those experiences. Ramadan is coming up in the Islam faith from May 5th to June 4th, and so I thought it would be good just to take a look at Islam and maybe some of our misconceptions, but also to hear the journey of a person who went from Islam to Catholicism. As we talk about the Blessed Mother on this podcast, the Quran has many references to the Blessed Mother, and it's often pointed out by many that the Quran has more references to the Blessed Mother than uh, than the Christian scriptures do. And so I'm very happy to speak with Daria Little, who rejected her family's Islamic faith and became an atheist during her parents' divorce. During her adolescence, she tried to convince a Christian missionary that there was no God, but she herself was converted to Christ instead. And so welcome to the show, Daria Little. Thank you for having me, Father. Daria, I guess one of the questions I would like to ask, and as I read through from Islam to Christ, I was able to learn a lot of your story, but maybe could you share a little bit about your background right now and your own family life uh, currently as it is? I'm a mother of four. Uh, We have four kids, eight and under, so it's really busy. And uh, that's my main vocation for the time uh, being. And... um, We've been almost, my husband and I have been married for almost 10 years. Both are um, convert to Catholicism, uh, thanks be to God. And uh, we are both striving to get to heaven together. And on the side, I, whenever I can find time, I write. And um, I also have a podcast as well. So uh, when I have a little bit of free time, that's what the Lord called me to do. So that's how life is now. It's relatively peaceful <laughs> compared to the past. You know, one of the things about Islam itself is that I think that there's a lot of misperceptions that maybe we hear things, we come to conclusions, we jump to them pretty quickly uh, as just Western believers here uh, in the United States and elsewhere. But I guess, could could you just maybe define or outline some of the basic principles of Islam? Uh, Yes. Um, It's been interesting for me to see how Westerners uh, perceive and react to Islam um, so I feel like there are two camps within the Catholic Church. Uh, not the, I'm not talking about the broad, broader culture. It's either, uh, yes, um, yes, they are kind of just leave them alone. Uh, they, they will find God in their own way, and, you know, it's like the God still loves them. Or on the other side, let's, it's just the religion is from the devil, and let's not have anything to do with it. But I think uh, the truth lies, as usual, in between uh, those two extremes. Um, so Islam was revealed to Muhammad in, um, in the 7th century, and he, um, he thought Angel Gabriel visited, appeared to him in a, in a cave and dictated to him the Quran. Uh, so it's like, unlike the Bible, it's like a literal dictation from Allah. So there is no human writer involved. So over the years... Angel Gabriel dictated in the Quran, and that was the beginning of Islam. And um, it's, it has a lot of, if you read the Quran, it has a lot of references to uh, Judaism and Christianity because Muhammad was really exposed to these religions where he lives. But you can also see that a lot of stories, especially um, like stories about Our Lady, are distorted. Um, you, can, you can see there are some stories from um, the... Um, Proto-Evangelium of James, 
uh, that aren't in the in the gospels but also are well known were well known by the people of the time and um and there are some stories uh of syriac origin as well so there's just this um kind of a you know a hodgepodge of uh, stories put together. Some details are missed. Some are distorted. It's just it's just different. So that's that's the Quran, and Islam itself is. I'd say it's more similar to Judaism in practice. Um, it's it's a very simple religion. Like you convert, you say the Shahada, you become a Muslim, and you. Um, what you're asked to do is very simple, and that's I think one of the reasons it's very attractive to people. Um, for instance, you talked about Ramadan. Fasting is one of the five pillars of Islam. So as a Muslim, every Ramadan you're supposed to fast from um, sundown to sun, uh, uh, right, sun up to sundown. But like, no, nothing goes into your mouth. Water, gum, cigarette, food, like nothing. And um, and then you have a big meal it's called the iftar for uh, the evening meal for dinner, and then people usually wake up to eat before uh, before the sunrise again. Um, so it's uh, and then other pillars are you know fasting, giving alms, and pilgrimage, and praying. Of course, uh, that's the five times daily prayer. So um, since I became Christian, it's been interesting to see what which practices have been borrowed from. Uh, Christianity and Judaism, um, like they do, one of them is the sacrifice yearly. They sacrifice animals, and that's clearly borrowed from Judaism. But the the reason, if you ask a Muslim why you sacrifice, the, the reason uh, of bloodshed for the atonement of sins isn't there. Um, it's we do it because Allah asks you to do. Uh, so that's um, that's in a nutshell is Islam, but. Um, um, most people are, they just, most Muslims, they learn their faith from their elders. Um, I feel like in the West, um, Christianity is very Protestantized in a way that you have to read the Bible and learn it yourself. But when you think about it, a few hundred years ago, everybody learned their faith, Christianity from their elders, people, you know, the priests, their parents. So it's still similar to Islam. So most of them don't even most Muslims are not even aware of what Islam actually teaches or what Muhammad, um, how Muhammad lived or what Quran says about certain things. Uh, but most of them just go about their ways trying to get to heaven, you know, um, like most of us. But uh, the religion itself is quite different. Um, does that answer your question? Oh, yes. And in my reading of Fulton Sheen, for example, he wrote a book called The World's First Love, a book totally dedicated to the Blessed Mother and Fulton Sheen's thought. And he makes a point in there about Fatima and how that has a relationship in some way to Islam, to Muhammad. Uh, could, could you share just a little bit about Fatima? Yes, it's really interesting because um, I didn't know anything about all these Marian apparitions and stuff, right? I mean, growing up Muslim and then atheist. So I become Catholic and they keep talking about this Our Lady of Fatima. I'm like... Um, that's one of Muhammad's daughter's names. I don't understand how that's related to Our Lady. Like, but you know, now that I know the story in the background, um, I think I do truly believe that the um, the conversion of Muslims will come through Our Lady because, like, you look in Islam, you look in the Quran, 
and she's there and there is no reason for her to be there to be honest um there's um i think one of the reasons muhammad uh emphasized mary is because he wanted to downplay uh the christian claim that jesus was son of god so if you read the quran he's she's mentioned so many times because it's always jesus son of mary jesus son of mary so mm. he wanted to emphasize that he is he's a mere human like us you know like christians are wrong by calling him the son of god but at the same time i i, I think that's like a whimsical way of our lady putting herself in there because he's really she's really revered in in muslim countries like you go to his ha- her house in ephesus in turkey is visited by christians and muslims people come and ask like muslims come and ask for her in- intercession like it's it's really interesting how much she's revered and even in the quran um it's he says that he was she was purified purified by allah like what does that even mean because they don't really have the concept of original sin there are some references to it but there's an understanding so what was she purified from Hmm. so it's really it's really interesting to see i think like she's like okay um um her place in islam i think will eventually lord willing bring the conversion of many muslims and you know you can see that with fatima and um and um i don't know the did you talk about the story about Our Lady of Fatima in your podcast? Uh, I have not yet, but I will be, I'm sure, at some point uh, sharing that story of Our Lady of Fatima and her apparitions on the 13th of each month from May to October in Portugal. Yeah, the the, the town is called Fatima because that um, she was a convert, that lady was a convert, uh, convert from Islam, you know, because of the, the, the Muslim invasion of uh, Spain. And her, and she married to a Christian, like a lord, and he named the time after his beloved, whose name was Fatima, who was named after Muhammad's daughter. So, like, it's, like, all these little interesting details, you know, God is, he looks down from heaven outside of time, and he places all these references to Our Lady in Islam. And I always ask people, ask Our Lady's intercession to, uh, um, if you want, conversion of uh, Muslims. I was talking to this one lady, and um, she lives in a predominantly Muslim country, and she was doubting about, she read the Quran, and she was really struggling, and it was a Ramadan, and she prayed to Allah and says, said, please send me a dream of Muhammad so that I don't have these doubts anymore. She goes to sleep, and behold, she sees Christ with his mother. So, mm. and, um, so it's like she always kind of, um, kind of answers the prayers of the um so that people can find the truth so you're right it's very interesting but we don't quite understand why you know so hopefully one day from heaven we will see how the lord made made this come about but um i think our lady is a very special place in islam yeah you were talking about ephesus and how there's both christians and muslims go there to to seek the intercession of the blessed mother and I saw a news story after the fire at Notre Dame in Paris that suggested that the Islam um, leaders were encouraging donations to Notre Dame de Paris, uh, to that cathedral, to its rebuilding. And so even there, seeing the sense of, you know, the regard for the Blessed Mother that they have, that they would even donate to the rebuilding of that church. Now, 
you know, Ephesus, Fatima, these places are spots of Christian pilgrimage, especially for Catholics. Um, but you talked about pilgrimage being one of the pillars of Islam. And I know that there's something with Mecca that a lot of the a lot of Muslims will make a pilgrimage during their life to Mecca. And what's the story behind that? Um, so Mecca, um, did, I, did you see that building? It's like a big black cube, it looks like. Um, have you seen it? Like, um, so that's it, that, that building is called, I mean, in Turkish it's called Kabe, so I don't know what's in Arabic. So that building uh, in Muhammad's time was full of idols. So it is said that Muhammad went in there and cleared all the idols and claimed that temple for Allah. So, uh, and... Um, when Islam first came about, they used to turn to Jerusalem to pray, right? Like their liturgical East was Jerusalem. And then um, there is like a different period when Christians and Jews didn't accept Muhammad's uh, new teachings. I think he got kind of upset. And when he moved moved back to Mecca, he uh, cleaned out this temple and he said, this is our liturgical East now. So everywhere in the, you know, in, in, in the world, when Muslims pray, they turn to Kaaba, which is in Mecca. And one of the five pillar, pillars is that you go to the pilgrimage. That's the only, like, it's a different kind of idea of pilgrimage. That's the only pilgrimage place that's acceptable in Islam. There are other holy places, like in Jerusalem, but it's um, it doesn't have the same like effect as going to Mecca and they go and they um, tur- like they take mm, walk around it seven times um, again I'm thinking that's from Jericho so they call they walk around seven times in reverence and prayers and they have some kind of like a holy water well there were um, and um, so that's the pilgrimage and they say that's like if you go a lot of people do it later in life because they say that will like erase all your past sins if you go to um, go to that pilgrimage. Okay. So that's a, it's a different kind of idea. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe just one last question about Islam before we talk about your conversion from Islam to Christ. Uh, as we as mentioned earlier already about Ramadan, what's the story behind Ramadan that the the Muslim people will be celebrating uh, in the upcoming month? Um. Honestly, I think they borrowed the idea from our very strict Lenten practices sure. back in the day. You know? um, so it's like a month long. So every, it's, um, they follow a lunar calendar, so it's different. You know, They don't follow the solar calendar the West follows. So Ramadan is one of the lunar calendar uh, months, and this is the time they just fast um, for... Um, to gain points, basically, it's like again different different way of salvation than Christians understand. So to, to gain favor in in eyes of Allah with good deeds, that's what is done. And at the end of Ramadan, um, then there is a three day of celebration. It's like you know, again, I'm thinking it's like an Easter. Like I'm, the similarities are there, Lent and a few days of Easter. So. Um, so Ramadan, and then there's three days of uh, festival and celebration. But it's to gain favor in the eyes of Allah. So what was your experience of Islam then as you were growing up uh, and then ultimately deciding to reject the Islamic faith? So 
you know, what was the experience, what led uh, to all of this unveiling so that you would ultimately convert to Catholicism later in life? So my parents were both Muslim, and my mom, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't very obser- observant. Like, my mom didn't cover her hair, or she didn't pray the five-time daily prayer. She does now, but when I was little, she didn't. But she she always fasted for Ramadan. Uh, but my father didn't uh, observe any, like, religious practices, as far as I can remember. But everybody was Muslim. Like, that's, there's no question it's part of the identity. And Turkey is a little more different than other Middle Eastern co- countries. It's more secularized uh, because after the World War I, um, our founder um, said that Tur- the Ottoman Empire collapsed because it didn't, it wasn't um, westernized enough in terms of technology and innovation. So, like, we go to school during the winter. It's very secularized. We had uniforms. We learned about laicism, which is, like, the sec- um French version of uh, secularism, separation between state and uh, um, and the mosque in, t- in terms in Turkey, and um, we learn all these like Western concepts. Um, and then in the summer, me and my uh, brother and all the neighborhood kids went to the mosque and learned how to read the Quran. And I lived in rural rural Turkey, so it's like it's people's experiences are different in cities. A lot of them don't even get exposed to even that much Islam. But everybody is Muslim. Like that's um, that's who you are. Um, it's maybe it's more like you know if you're Irish, you're Catholic, I suppose. You know, so it doesn't matter how much you practice, but that's part of your identity. So that's how I was, and I didn't meet anybody else for a long time. Um, but I, I, as a little girl, I um, when Imam talked to us, you know, they will talk. He will talk about hellfire and. And uh, and such. So I I become slowly very devout. So did my brother. As um, so it it was very the rule Islam was very important to me. Um, but when um, then but when my parents divorced, um, that was the first time I really doubted. Like I because there wasn't anybody else who had a divorce. It wasn't common at all. And um, it really kind of uh, shattered my world, I'd say. Um, I felt very ostracized, like, within my uh, school community. And my uh, my father left for good, and we didn't hear from him for a long time. And my, my mother um, became very depressed. So um, it was very, like, a dark time. And the more I prayed, the more I realized that there wasn't anybody who was listening and one of the things with Islam I try to explain people is that there is this fear that's ingrained in you from an early age not to ever question. Um, like doubt, questions, they're not welcome. Um, so, and I was, I was, I always was afraid of questioning and doubting and going to that fence to see what's on the other side. Um, so I was around 11 and that was the first time I, um, when my uh, my parents' divorce made me question their love for me and, and and also everything they ever taught me, if that makes sense. I think it happens in the West a lot, too, um, because as children, our life revolves around our parents. And when that gets um, lost, it's kind of like your whole universe is broken. So when I started reading the Quran in Turkish for the first time with a questioning eye, I realized that Muhammad wasn't someone I wanted to follow. But I didn't know anything else. So I slowly became an atheist. Like I, First, I turned my back to Islam, and that 
slowly became and became atheism because what they teach in Islam is Allah sent Moses, gave him a book, and um, the the Jews corrupted it. Then Allah sent Jesus and gave him a book, and the Christians corrupted that book. And then Allah finally sent Muhammad and gave him a book. And to to me, they were all the same. There was nothing different. So um, so I lived a very like a secular life until um, until I met a Christian finally when I was 19 and uh, she was a she was a Protestant and I had never ever seen a practicing Christian until then. I mean, it's a very homogeneous country. You just don't meet meet Christians, you know. You said that you didn't want to follow Muhammad, that that was the resolution that you came to, and so then you met this Christian missionary. And so what was the point that you were able to say, I want to follow this Jesus, that this missionary, that the that all these believers throughout the world believe in? So what was that movement like for you? Oh, um, I was very, um, I talk about in the book, I wanted to enlighten this poor woman who still believed in God. You know, and because I was very, I was a very staunch missionary kind of atheist. Um, it took over three years of reading. Like I had to be convinced that these all these crazy miracles that um, Christians believe that happened happened because Islam isn't uh, built on miracles. We don't talk about it. Like it's not part part of it. Um, so I'm like, you know. You're saying he actually rose from the dead. That's ridiculous, you know. So, like, I, I had to go back and read everything and eyewitness accounts. And there is just so much stuff. And um, so it took a long time, three and a half years. And I couldn't, um, honestly, I couldn't come to the decision myself. And the Lord slowly brought me. But one of, I think the biggest thing this Protestant lady taught me was that how different Allah and um God is like Allah meaning the the God the deity that Muhammad teaches and um, the creator of the universe they are completely different I mean I think your regular Muslim worships you know directs his or her worship to the Lord but the God the deity Quran teaches is very different but when she talked about God you know uh, God the Father, uh, he was he was so much bigger than I had ever pictured in Islam. I don't know if that makes sense. And he was consistent, and he was good, and he was like he could he could he would be compatible with science. I'm sorry, I was really obsessed with science and you know all that stuff back then. So the way he she told she explained who God is to me um, was was a big turn. And then I had to come to an understanding of what sin is. Again, I mentioned that there's not a concept of original sin or like a a proper understanding of sin in Islam. So I had to come to an understanding of original sin and how my own sins are responsible for a lot of the evil that's happening in the world. You know, so I had to solve that uh, question of evil in my mind. Um, And even that wasn't enough. And I had to witness the Christian's Christian's life. Uh, that was a really big point of um, turning point for me. Like I, ha- I saw what joy Christ could bring in people's lives and what it means to be a Christian family. And finally, the Lord gave me a vision because He was like, "Okay, clearly you still don't get it. 
So he kind of like slapped me on the head, and um, I was 22 when I finally converted by Protestants, and I was baptized in a Protestant church. So you entered into the Christian faith through the Protestant tradition, and then how did you find Catholicism? Well, one of the things with Turkey is um, it's very anti-Catholic because of, you know, crusades, and I don't, um, like during the Reformations, um, the Ottoman Empire sided with the Protestant princes because he, you know, the, the Ottomans loved that Christians were killing each other. Um, so everything is very anti-Catholic. Like all the bad guys in all Turkish movies are ca- evil Catholic men, you know. Um, so I was very, I grew up very ca- anti-Catholic, like not just anti-Christian, but very anti-Catholic. And then the Protestants I was around were very anti-Catholic. as were like a lot of Calvinists and uh, Baptists. Um, Southern Baptist, not just Baptist. And anyway, um, so I was very anti-Catholic, and I was also running a teen, Turkish teenage camp for Turkish Christians. And um, one of the counselors I became friends with, he grew up in Turkey, and when he was attending Notre Dame in America, he became Catholic, and I was appalled that he would become Catholic, uh, you know, idol worshiper and such, you know. Um but um, when I finally started reading about what the Catholic Church actually taught, I realized that in, within, the, within the Catholic Church, all the questions I had about pro- Protestantism, like only Bible only, faith only, all those beliefs, or lack of a magisterium, lack of an authority, they were all answered within the Catholic Church. And then um, just before I was confirmed in Turkey, I... Um, I had to move to England for my PhD, and I ended up getting confirmed in England um, 11 years ago. Well, welcome, and I hope that these past 11 years have been a very deepening of your own spirituality and coming to know the Lord and and uh, living the Christian faith. Now, so when you converted to Christianity and ultimately to Catholicism, how did your parents receive that? Well, by the time we, um, I was in college, we had very broken relationship with my parents. Like, I, I didn't have any relationship with my father, and very broken relationship with my mother. Um, like after the, before the divorce too, but she's she became very abusive. So, um, I really barely had any relationship with either. And um, the Lord really pushed me towards forgiving them. Of course, how can we ask for forgiveness if we are not willing to forgive ourselves? Um, so at, during my graduation ceremony from college, I invited them both and I told them that I became a Christian and that's the only reason I'm willing to continue a relationship with them. And, uh, so now both, they both know, and, um, they're very happy what Christ has turned me into. Um, I've become a, obviously much palatable person, <laughs> Uh, because of because of grace, so they're happy with the fruits, but we they don't really talk about it. And they visit me in um, me and my family in the U.S. And you know we have all crucifixes and such. Um, it's kind of like an elephant in the room, and uh, but they weren't uh, hostile, uh, which is very common in you know when a Muslim, a Muslim converts. But I, I was in a way blessed that my parents weren't hostile to my conversion. Maybe just one last question about your conversion as you've gone from Islam to Christ. How has becoming a follower of Jesus, professing the Catholic faith, living the faith, learning about the saints, how has that made a difference in your life? (laughs) Ah, very big difference. Um, 
I was I was living a very simple and empty life. Um, I tell people I was an honest atheist uh, because when you think about atheism, you know, when you die, you go nowhere, you become dust, and uh, there is no afterlife. And I just kind of never thought about that. I I lived for the day, and that never was fulfilling for me. And um, and I did live a very simple life. I talk about it in the book. Uh, so. Once I converted the Lord slowly, took me away from that lifestyle and in, away from the friendships that caused that lifestyle and cleaned out all that stuff that has accumulated in my heart and in my life over time. And um, I think I, the biggest thing he's given me um, is, is, the, is the peace and the joy of salvation. And over time, of course, I married my husband and, you know, I have children now. I mean, if you told me when I was 17 or 18 I'd have four kids, I would be like, no, that's never going to happen. I thought it would, it was a really bad idea to bring children to this awful world. Um, so it's, it was a very long process, but I think um, I'm hoping I, I, I am becoming a better Catholic very slowly, but I'm hoping I'm getting there. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and one of the things that I like to do on this podcast, How They Love Mary, is to build what's called the Marian Profile. So I love talking with guests about different topics, their own life or a new book they wrote or uh, whatever their work is that they do in the church. But then, you know, the reality is, is we all have a different type of Marian devotion that how I love Mary is going to be different than another person's. And so what I think happens is when we learn from other people their own devotion, well, it might inspire us. It might encourage us to take on a Marian devotion or, or think about the Blessed Mother in a different way. So I just have a series of quick questions that you can just, uh, if you have an answer, feel free to give. And maybe if you don't, that's all right, too. Uh, so mm -hmm. uh, do you have a favorite title of Mary? Uh, yes. I pray the um, Our Lady Star of the Sea uh, prayer every morning, and I think it's very appropriate for our time. So that's my favorite title of her. Sure, the Hail Bright Star of Ocean, the Ave Mar Stella prayer? Um, no, not the old version. This is the one that's written by St. John Paul II. Okay, um, sure. Our Lady, yeah, Our Lady Star of the Sea, Light of Every Ocean, and it... Um, yeah, if you put uh, John Paul II and Our Lady Star of the Sea, it comes up. And I think sure. it's like a beautiful depiction of the times we live in. Uh, how about a Marian sacramental? So sometimes people might wear a scapular or a miraculous medal, a rosary bracelet. Do you have any Marian sacramentals that that you wear? Yeah, a miraculous medal. Um, my husband has a wonderful devotion to Our Lady, and I learned a lot from him. So I've been, since we got married, I've been wearing a miraculous medal. Okay. Uh, I think you probably answered this. Uh, a favorite Marian prayer. So, of course, we have the Hail Mary. There are lots of different prayers to the Blessed Mother asking her intercession. So, a favorite Marian prayer. Maybe it's that John Paul II prayer. Yes, it is. And the other one is um, Salve Regina. Um, sure. Hail Holy Queen. Is um, I pray a lot with my children, too. A lot of people find it difficult uh, to pray the rosary. Sometimes they think it's monotonous or repetitive, and uh, they, they don't really engage it. Do you have anything or any way that you pray the rosary, any tip 
that you might want to offer to help somebody that struggles with the rosary? I did. Uh, I found it very hard. And again, I said my my husband converted from Lutheranism because of the intercession of Our Lady. And he prays all the mysteries, like all four (laughs) decades, not decades, all four mysteries a day. And um, he really encouraged me over the years. And now I have to pray, pray daily. Um, the thing is, it doesn't come easy, but this is what I tell people. Not everything comes easy. Nobody wants to go to the gym. Nobody wants to eat vegetables, really. But it's really good. And um, it's just, this is what I could say, persevere. And look, if you don't meditate on one deca- decade or two decades, it's okay. Our lady is willing to just hold you in her arms, as you say, the Hail Marys. And... Um, and just persevere, even when you can't. And one thing that really helped me, we downloaded uh, a um, like a, a like an album of, of the rosary. And when I don't feel like sitting down and praying, I just put it and just sit down and listen other people pray and join in their prayer. Sure. So that helps a lot too. So yeah, there are lots hang of, in there. Yes, there are lots of rosary apps out there, and one I always recommend is called Broken Mary, that this man, Kevin Matthews, who used to be a radio personality in Chicago, he create, he had this very profound conversion and uh, coming to love the Blessed Mother. And so uh, his his rosary is one that I often will play if I'm going to listen to an app uh, to pray the rosary. How about a Marian Bible passage? Any story of the Blessed Mother in the Scriptures speak to you? Nowadays, because I have so many little kids, my favorite one is when they lost our Lord at the temple. When I failed as a mother, I was like, at least I didn't lose any of the kids for three days yet. So, <laughs> but it always, she she speaks to me as a mother a lot recently. So I think it's just that's the state of life I am in. Um, yeah. There, there have been a lot of Marian apparitions all throughout the world. Uh, is there a favorite Marian apparition that of yours? You know, I just found out about her his, her apparition in Zaytun, Egypt. I don't know. Have you heard of this? Yes, it's a, yes. It's an apparition. Uh, so that's my favorite. He, she just like uh, she's called Our Lady, um, Lady of Light. I think she just as a like a you know her figure, but light hovered above this church, and she healed. So many people, Muslims, Christians, everyone. So that's my favorite, her favorite apparition of mine um, for the time being. It sure. changes monthly. The more I learn about her, you know. There are lots of Marian shrines. So not only is there a shrine and an apparition site, but then there are devotional shrines to Mary all throughout the world. Is there a favorite Marian shrine that you have visited? No, I haven't visited that many. Um, the one, the only one I visited is um, it's near Philadelphia. Uh, I can't even say it because it's that Polish. <laughs> Our, Our Lady, Lady of Czestochowa. Yes, that's the only one I, I, I visited, and I, I loved it. Um, but but I can't compare it with others. That's one of the things I'm hoping as the kids older and we can travel more to visit more shrines. Sure. And how about a favorite Marian hymn? So a lot of times during Marian feast days, we'll sing a, a hymn to honor the Blessed Mother. Is there a hymn that you have a fondness for? Yeah, the, the, 
a Hail Holy Queen in, in Latin is my by far favorite hymn of all times, but especially among um, Marian hymns. Okay. Well, it's been great having you on the show, and I'm so appreciative that you were able to share some insights about Islam, that you could help us to maybe know a little more about it, but also to hear how you went from Islam to Christ, as your book with Ignatius Press says. Now, if people want to learn more about you or about your works, where can they do that? Um, I have a website. It's daryalittle.com. So that's D-E-R-Y-A-L-I-T-T-L-E.com. And I also have a podcast, Live a Little. I talk about evangelizing Muslims and anybody else a lot. So they can find it on uh, Breadbox Media and iTunes or wherever they listen to their podcasts. Oh, wonderful. And they can follow you on Twitter. That's where I follow you. And they can also get your book from Ignatius Press or Amazon.com. A special thank you to our guest, Daria Little, for joining us today, and also to Anna Nuzo for the use of her music in this podcast. You've been listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary. I hope it has either been the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. You can follow me, Father Edward Looney, on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fr edward looney l o o n e y. You can also subscribe to this podcast now on many different podcast platforms, and please leave a review so that others might be able to find it. Until next week, let us remain united in prayer to Jesus through Mary. God bless.